it's old timey crimey i'm christy and i'm amber and we are coming to you uh not live uh but (laughs) we are coming to you from a very comfortable couch in a living room yes because my back is spasmy and i could not even think about sitting in a desk chair so i was like let's record in the living room so if the sound is not quite up to our usual quality it'll go back to it unless we decide to just constantly record from the living room or the deck or the hot tub <laughs> like there's just a myriad of options that are all more pleasant than sitting in a desk chair yes yes there are so we have such an interesting man to talk about from historical true crime today he is very interesting, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, he's uh, interesting as a word that, that describes him, yeah. So before we get to that, though, you'll hear more about the Patreon later in the show. But Amber, I told you some stories today. What were they about? They were about weird deaths. Weird deaths, specifically of ancient Greeks. And <laughs> some very amusing names. Yes, oh my goodness. That was, uh, that was rough. I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed it very, very much. So yes, that was our bonus episode for this week. So if you're a member of the Patreon, you can uh, listen to that. So we are going to talk today about a man named Boone Helm. Boone Helm. Boone Helm. Now, first off, big thanks to Paul for sending us the book, uh, Ryan Green's The Kentucky Cannibal. And Paul is awesome. And Paul is awesome. Thank you, Paul. So that was uh, that's a, a major source material for this, and uh, as well as another book that is by Nathaniel Langford Pitt called Vigilante Days and Ways, The Pioneers of the Rockies. We are going all the way back to the 1800s, and we're going to start in Kentucky, quite obviously. Yeah. It's funny that he's the Kentucky cannibal and he barely lived in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, he was in Kentucky for a minute. Yeah. Nobody else wanted to take any claim to him. Right. So he was born Levi Boone Helm in Lincoln County, Kentucky on January 28th, 1828. And he was the eighth of 11 children. That's a lot of eights. It is. You would think it'd be a lucky number. Uh, it is not for pretty much most people who came into contact with him. So he was the eighth of 11 children born to Joseph and Nancy Helm. His eldest sibling was 12 years older than him, and he had four older brothers, two older sisters, and then after him came a boy and two girls, and then one older sister died in infancy. But all in all, pretty fair survival rate for the Helm children. Yeah, especially at that time. Mm -hmm. Now Helm, as a last name, means one who lived by or worked at a rough temporary shelter for animals. Oh, which kind of fits later on, and uh, could also be a maker of helmets. Boone, as a name, might actually come from Daniel Boone, who only died eight years before. So they might see him as this sort of pioneering inspiration, and therefore use his name. All right, all right. The family kind of followed where the work was. They got themselves a settlement in Jackson Township, Missouri, and started up a farm there. Boone was still quite young at this time, and the family became part of the community. Boone became quite the frontier boy. Frontier's boy. Something. He had friends whose fathers were furriers. Yes, I said it right. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, ah, typing that, I was like, I don't know. (laughs) And these friends taught him their skills in trapping that they learned from their fathers. Boone enjoyed that. 
And he had a Bowie knife from his father that he'd gotten as a present that he would use to kill animals and then skin them. Although, sometimes he kind of started the skinning part first. Oh my, and that is your first giant red flag, ladies and gents. Huge waving in the breeze, red flag just flapping away. So he was younger than these pals of his. They were teens when he started hanging out with them around age 10. As far as personality goes, not great. He tended to hold grudges. He could be violent. He was called cunning and cruel and sort of had this methodicalness about him. Like he would lie and wait to get his vengeance, you know? He also seemed to be very athletic. He learned a few stunts. Uh, He could ride on horseback. And as he was riding in like a full gallop, he would throw his bowie knife into the ground and then jump down to grab it and hop back on the horse. Which is actually really impressive if you think about it. That's amazing to me. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't even come close to that. Well, even if he's, like, because I've seen sometimes trick riders can actually manage to slide almost underneath the horse and then use their, their strength to pull themselves back up without ever getting off the horse. I'm not sure what she did. Mm-hmm. But either way, it's super friggin' impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy impressive. So yeah, that was a a thing that he did. He also, as a teenager, would have boxing and wrestling matches with the local men. Well, he he seemed to really like violence, so that was definitely a sport he'd be into. Yeah, he was really into that. And then he started hanging around the saloons, and men on their way home from a night of drinking could expect that Boone would try to rile them up so that he could have a good fight. In Vigilante Days and Ways, Nathaniel Langford Pitt said, quote, He excelled in feats of physical strength and delighted in nothing more than a quarrel which brought his prowess into full display. Pitt also knows that he was a heavy drinker, quote, And when excited by liquor gave way to all the evil passions of his nature. This was written in like 1912, somewhere around there. <laughs> so definitely has that flavor to it. All this behavior didn't really sit well with his family. Ryan Green says that by the time he was in his late teens, his dad wouldn't even speak to him. And his mother just basically cried at what a shitheel her son had turned into. There you go. Yeah. His siblings weren't paying him much attention because they're off trying to get their own lives established and they kind of see him as a lost cause. Well, yeah, and it feels like if you would even try to talk to him, he would just try to pick a fight with you. Really, yes, yes. He's just very belligerent. He's just a belligerent dude. Then came his very first real arrest, more than just being tossed in a cell for being drunk and rowdy and mean. So naturally, this man who's intent on being just a a giant dickwad all the time, he and the sheriff did not get along so hot. Shocking. I know, right? Green says that they sometimes had shouting matches in the street, which is just kind of fun to think about for some reason. I don't know why. Just the sheriff just losing his shit and screaming on the street. Finally, the sheriff had had enough of Boone's antics and was like, I'm going to get a warrant and I'm going to drag him to jail. and We're going to actually do something with the law this time because Boone had beat up yet another hapless drunk. The sheriff kind of made a little mistake here. Not necessarily in trying to arrest Boone, but in trying to arrest Boone while the young man was still on his horse. So Boone just was like, no, I'm not doing this. And then he rode up to the courthouse, up the steps, and into court, which was in session. This had to be quite the moment for the judge. 
Right, the judge is like, what the hell? <laughs> Come on. What Damn it, Boone. Wrong with you. So <laughs> the judge was there to see it and hear it. Green says, quote, bellowing curses and insults at the top of his lungs, demanding to know what fool of a judge put his name on a warrant. That's a day at work, right? Wow. You go home and you're like, oh my God, I had such a day. This guy rode his horse into court and then was calling me a fool. And his wife is like, well, what did you do about it? And the judge is like, I just, I just dropped the charge. I wanted him out of there. <laughs> I didn't want this guy and his horse shitting in my courtroom anymore. And also, he could probably take me in a fight. I didn't want to do that. Yeah, there's that too. So the judge let Boone go. Didn't even charge him with contempt for riding his horse into the courthouse and yelling at him and calling him a fool. Pussy. So the sheriff and his deputies were waiting outside the courthouse, and Boone just rode his horse past them and said, Better luck next time, boys. He's got balls. He's got, he's got balls, and he's got just kind of a... He's got more balls than brains. That is incredibly true. He doesn't have much in the way of brains, but somehow he makes it work with the balls. Boone is getting to be around 20, and there's this question of, you know, is this evil, rotten-hearted bird ever going to fly the coop? He's got a couple of girls, but he really sets his heart on Lucinda Browning. She was 17, and they did kind of date. He courted her, but she would never let him go all the way. And he definitely put on a mask when he was around her. He sort of tricked her into this. So she bought it, and they got married. Rather delightfully, they signed the license in the same courthouse that Boone rode his horse into not too long before. I just pictured the judge trying to, like, catch Lucinda's eye and just, like, shaking yeah, his just, head no. Like, don't do it! Don't do it! Don't do it. Oh, the pen ran out of ink. <laughs> Get out of here! So they were married on January 5th, 1851. And that mask he put on seemed to fall off pretty quickly. Green tells of their wedding night as basically uh, Boone just drinking it up nonstop. And Lucinda having to uh, cart this drunken asshole home after he sucked down whiskey like uh, it was his first night at the frat house. But how many weddings really? I mean, (laughs) how many weddings are like that? After my wedding, we went over to the hotel where we were staying that night, and I was driving other people. They came in my car. My mother-in-law had forgotten her glasses, so she couldn't drive. One of my bridesmaids was with us. She was too drunk to drive, and Jackson was too drunk to drive. So I, with my big, poofy dress, had to get into Jackson's Mercury Cougar and drive it first to my house so I could get my license, which I didn't have on me, um, and then over to the Holiday Inn. And I was like, had my big poopy dress. It was like up to my chin in those bucket seats. It was hilarious. So yeah, that's, that is a lot of wedding nights, but it's, it's pretty bad. Like the abuse starts pretty quickly. And it's not a fairy tale romance. He turns into a vicious, abusive jackass, or actually the vicious, abusive jackass lets itself be seen. Yeah, it's, it's who he always was. He was just hiding it. Exactly. He beat her regularly. He whipped her with his belt, and she basically had perpetual black eyes, this poor woman, to the extent that Green says she just basically stopped even caring about it as far as, you know, like not leaving the house or trying to cover it up. 
quote, eventually abandoning her shame and going about her errands as though it was perfectly normal for a husband to punch his wife in the face for talking to him. Boonhelm is an asshole. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt here. Yeah, no, no, no. And it's going to get worse, just so you know. Domestic abuse is not the peak of his assholishness, even though it's pretty rough. He's also, of course, a lazy bastard, not bringing in any money, and also running up huge tabs at the saloons. The only way that they're getting by is that her parents are helping to support them as much as they can. And, of course, no one, including the bartenders in town or people he owes gambling debts to, are going to ask Boone to pay them back when they can ask Lucinda instead. So she's fielding all these requests for, to pay back his loans and his tab and all these things. And she's like, I don't have any money. He's not bringing anything in. It's a rough spot for her. It really is. So we've got financial abuse, physical abuse, definitely sexual abuse. And honestly, I think the next step he takes here qualifies as psychological abuse. He expected her to keep the house sparkling clean. Not only did he, of course, not contribute to that, because it's the 1850s, he did his damnedest to make it nay on impossible. He rode his horse in the house. His... Shitty, stinking horse. He's got, like, a Mr. Hands thing going on with that horse. Like, it's weird. There's a weird relationship there. There is definitely a, a... He loves his horse more than his wife. And everybody, it seems. Yeah. Like, his family... The horse is his favorite thing of all the living things that he is around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very strange. Did you catch my neigh on impossible? I yeah, caught sorry. your neigh on a... <laughs> I caught it. <laughs> sorry. Paul, I know you like that one. <laughs> That's for you, Paul. And of course, if she didn't keep the place to his lofty standards, Boone would beat her senseless. He's making it impossible and then basically giving him, him himself an excuse to beat her. She's in a no-win situation. I'm bored. I'm going to throw horse shit on the floor and punch her in the face. Exactly, yeah. She finally gets a moment to breathe when he went out on a mining trip with some of his buddies. She didn't even know he was going until he was already gone. She was just like, my husband hasn't come home for a couple nights. I'm okay with this. That's fine. Let's not ask questions. And uh, then she had about a month of peace. Of course, it was during this month of peace that she realized she was pregnant. This seemed to kind of inspire her. She was going to bring a baby into this, this marriage that was really horrific and so she did what a lot of women today find impossible. She got the hell out. Good for her. I am so proud of Lucinda, and I'm proud of Boone's parents, because they were the ones who financed this divorce. So what happened was the divorce was already in progress. Boone came home from his mining trip, and he's like, what the hell is going on here? He figured there's no way she could afford this on her own. She must be shacking up with somebody. She must be cheating on me. Imagine his surprise when he finds out his own father paid for it. I love it. Good job, Pops. Yes, go Papa Helm and Lucinda. This act of kindness went even further than divorce. It went to support because the Helm family gave Lucinda all the money she would need to raise the baby, which turned to be a baby girl who she named Lucy, which pretty much drained the family's finances altogether. They lost their home, they lost the farm, and the parents went back east while his siblings went off and did their things. You know, it was the time of 
generally, if you wanted to make a fortune or make a new life, you went west. So a lot of them went west. So Boone's like, okay, don't have a wife to take care of me anymore. I'll just go home. Have my family take care of me. And all he found was an empty homestead and an auction sign. I can imagine his reaction to that. So they didn't even tell him. They're I don't like, think they even. Out. Yeah, I don't think they even said goodbye. I mean, really, it doesn't seem like it. They're probably like, let's just leave this asshole. And never find us. Especially considering the fact that they know he gets violent, and he is very angry at his father. His dad's probably like, yeah, it's actually for the best. Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> I don't need my son shooting me. I imagine his mom just being like, do you think we should go west? And the dad being like, no, nah, he'll fucking look for us there. Let's go east. Let, you know what? Let's go to Connecticut. Yeah, let's go somewhere he'd never expect us to go. Boone's wife has left him. His immediate family is gone. So he needs to find somebody else to deal with his bullshit. He found that, or at least he hoped that he had, in the person of a second cousin named Littleberry Shoot. Oh, Littleberry. Littleberry. There was uh, a lot of talk, of course, in those days about the gold rush in California. It was really flaring up all the, you know, American dream bullshit. And Boone wasn't super happy living in this place where everyone, the bartenders, the gamblers, the girls around town, knew that he was just a shitheel. He had the sheriff constantly on his tail. He didn't even have a place to live. No one quite knew where he spent his nights, but there were a few Fairly stinky clues that he was living in a stable. Probably with his fucking horse. Probably, yeah. Which goes back to that whole, you know, the word helm meaning, a, you know, somebody who lives by or works in a rough temporary animal shelter. Like, wow, that, that didn't take very long for him to live up to. <laughs> so California's looking more and more appealing. And one drunken night... Boone managed to wheedle Cousin Littleberry into agreeing to accompany him out west. Littleberry, of course, the next day woke up with some regrets. He was like, ah. I was really drunk last night when I agreed to that. What, what did I do? What did I do? And Boone shows up with his bags packed. He's ready to head out. And Littleberry said, no, I'm not going. And Boone just stabbed him in the heart with his bowie knife. And then just left him there. He didn't even bury Littleberry. Not even a little burial. <laughs> I'll see you in hell. <laughs> Not if I see you first. <laughs> so Boone looted everything he could from Littleberry and took off. I'm going to get the giggles now. <laughs> And he was, he, was, he was not super prepared for this. He'd been literally about to head out to California, so one would think he would have supplies, but he just had a little bit of water and a bit of horse food and his ability to hunt. So I do kind of wonder whether he actually was all packed and came to Littleberry's house or whether he just came to Littleberry's house and was like, okay, let's start planning. Littleberry was like, no, I'm not doing this. I was drunk. And then the stabbing happened and an unprepared Boone had to flee. No, you know what, though? I don't, I don't take Boone as the type to flee at all. I take it more as he was not, he was, he was maybe thinking Littleberry would have the provisions, but he also didn't give a shit because, again, he's more balls than brains. That is true. That is true. He just expects that wherever he goes, he'll be able to survive no matter what the conditions. Or people will bend over backwards and give him credit or loans or let him open tabs or mm -hmm. give him a place to stay if he forces his way in. 
I mean, how many times at this point has he probably screwed people out of money by borrowing it from them? Oh, yeah, like every, every penny he probably has. At no point did I see anywhere that he had a job of any sort. No, not really, no. He never really works. I mean, he did that mining trip, but he just basically, like, fuck around. Yeah, he doesn't really do much of anything, uh, aside from drink and gamble. And bully. And borrow. And not pay back. So he's out here. He's totally unprepared. He had a little bit of water, a little bit of horse food, and his ability to hunt. Littleberry's friends and family found his body, and they pretty much knew what had happened. I mean, they were like, yeah, he's stabbed in the heart, and... uh, He was with Boone last night, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. We all saw this coming. So the manhunt began. Eventually, they did find him, probably not too far from death. His horse was dead, his beloved horse, and uh, the story was that Boone was sucking on mud in an attempt to hydrate himself. Which is horrifying and gross, but don't worry, he'll get more horrifying and gross. I love it. Yep. The ride back to town was pretty interesting for everyone present. They were pretty sure that Boone had just, in his starving wanderings, gone completely out of his gourd. He's, he's banana sandwich. Total banana sandwich. Total banana sandwich. He was talking to himself a lot. He was gigging, giggling to himself all the time. We do that. That is true. <laughs> that is true. I also talk to myself, and uh, I just say I'm talking to the cat, but I'm really talking to myself. And uh, he tried to go for a little jog in the woods after jumping off of the sheriff's horse. They had to hogtie him just in order to keep him in place. And he would just, everybody would be trying to sleep and he'd just be muttering all night. I can only imagine how annoying that would be. So annoying. I'm shocked that nobody just like hit him with the butt of a gun. (laughs) Right? Or even just a frying pan or something. So by the time they got to the town, everyone was pretty certain that he was better off in an asylum than going to the gallows. And he had plenty of witnesses to tell the judge that. And there was even a doctor who agreed. And here Ryan Green gives us another euphemism for hanging in in telling us that, you know, Boone avoided it. Quote, doing the hemp dance out in the town square. So we've got necktie parties from a tiny. We've got the hemp dance. The hemp dance in the town square. Nowadays, that would mean something different. It would mean something very different, yes. And thus it was that Boonhelm was sent off to an asylum somewhere in the east. Pitt says, quote, his conduct meantime being that of a quiet, inoffensive lunatic. Ah, oh, there's the 1912. <laughs> <laughs> They're all thinking that this is it. He'll just waste away in the asylum. We'll never hear about him again. He'll just be a story that we tell. They were right. He would be a story, but it wasn't over yet. He sort of, in this way, I think it's more brains than balls. He basically lulled the asylum employees into thinking that he's just this harmless, well, you know, as Pitt puts it, inoffensive lunatic. They're like, oh, he couldn't do anything. He wouldn't hurt anybody. Yeah, and and this actually makes me think that maybe he was smarter than than we were thinking because he really did lull them into this sense of security Mm -hmm. of him just being harmless and broken. Mm Mm-hmm. And to the extent that they would allow him privileges that other people in the asylum didn't get. They let him go on walks around the asylum, accompanied by an orderly, of course. It was in pretty rural country. And Green says that he made a habit on these walks of going into a little grove of willows to urinate. Every time they passed that grove, it just became a habit. 
Pitt frames it as sort of a, it was a form of mania, his desire to go into the grove whenever he went by. Whatever the case, one day he's out for a walk with the orderly, goes into the grove of willows, and he does not come back out. And the orderly's like, that's an awfully long piss. Yeah, where, where, where'd you go? And then uh, the orderly didn't report it. He said nothing. He was just like, uh, no, I'm not going to lose my job because of this. So it took a little while for them to figure it out. And once they did, they were like, well, it's pretty wild country out there. He's probably not going to survive. He didn't have anything on him. He just left. Empty hands. Nothing. So like, well, somebody's going to find his body or the animals will find his body and eat it. And then there won't even be any evidence. And meanwhile, Boone is totally alive. And with the, that weird luck that he has, manages to hook up with a prospector who's heading to California. This arrangement lasted about, about a day or so until the prospector found Boone rifling through his bags, trying to find anything worth stealing. The two men had a fight, and then Boone beat the man to death with a rock. Hey, you gotta use what you have around you. He, he didn't have any weapons, he made a weapon. He is good at that. He is good at using his surroundings. So, now Boone is on his own with the prospector's supplies, and he needs to get out to California, or at least get out of this area. He did some more killing and pillaging en route, usually when he found someone traveling alone. Safety in numbers was a real thing in the Old West, especially if uh, you crossed paths with Boone Helm. Right? <laughs> yeah. He runs out of food at one point, and then he runs into a lone traveler, the exact type of person who's now in danger because Boone Helm is around. And as expected, Boone kills the man. He discovers that he and this man had a lot more in common than he thought. That man is also out of food. He'd lit a fire, gone off to do some hunting, and had not been successful yet when Boone killed him. So Boone has three things. And we know he's good at using his surroundings. He's, he's resourceful. He's a resourceful asshole. He has the fire the traveler had started when he went off hunting. He has the traveler's dead body. And he has his own bowie knife. And an appetite. And an appetite. And he sated it that night. He found dinner. And he ate the man. We told you he was the Kentucky cannibal. Yeah, really, <laughs> we warned you. Yeah, there was a spoiler right up front. So after a lot of travels and travails, Boone made it to California. And he managed to somehow find yet more family. I don't know how people just found other people so easily. In fact, they kind of found him. Somehow they heard that he was coming to California, and they met up, met up with him. It was John, Ham, and William Johnson. Yes, John Johnson, and Ham Johnson, and Willie Johnson. <laughs> They're all there. Low-hanging fruit. I know, right? I mean, they put it right in front of me. So, because Boone... <laughs> Did they know? They put the Willie Johnson right in front of me. They yeah. put Willie Johnson right in front of right your face. Right in front of me, yeah. Boone had been in the asylum. Word of his murder hadn't made it to California. Although word that he was coming did, which is weird. So he hooks up with these cousins, and he worked with them on their mining claims. He also told them about his adventures coming west, including the cannibalism. He's not shy about this. He'll tell people. Lots yeah. of people. 
And he did. He really would. Like, I, I saw several times that he almost, like, bragged about yeah. eating a man. I he, mean, I've heard about bragging about eating a woman. <laughs> but not a lot of uh, bragging about eating men. Yeah, right? He almost seems to find this a point of pride. He was ahead of his time. Apparently. So, at first they didn't really believe him when he said, yes, I, you know, ate a man on my way out here. But the more they saw how he would act wild and violent just for the sake of it, they were like, hmm, maybe, maybe he was telling the truth. Yeah. He's kind of unhinged. So it could have been a thing where it was like, you know, that I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Mm-hmm. And he's just telling stories. I was so hungry I ate a guy. And they're like, oh, ha, 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 ha. And then, like, after a while they realize it's just not like a weird Eastern euphemism. Yeah, it's, it's actually literal. And they also were kind of looking at him and they were like, is he really any help to us? I mean, he was lazy as hell, as we've said. So he would go off with them to help mine, except not actually help. He'd go with them to the mines and then probably find, like, defenseless animals to skin alive. Or just drink himself into a stupor. Also, You guys are doing a great job over there. You missed the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it was actually this very violence that saved them from having to sort of cut him off and send him away because he actually uh, took his leave of them voluntarily. He, he's kind of been tearing it up and, you know, hurting and killing people left and right. And the authorities, such as they were, were like, we need to do something about this dude. And Boone realized that his liberty was at risk. So he was like, I'm going to go that way. That way being north into the Pacific Northwest. And thanks for the hospitality. See you all later. And they're just like, dodged a bullet and a cannibal. Hooray! So only after he left did they finally hear about the murder in Missouri. The murder of Littleberry Shoot. And they decided just to kind of keep their mouths shut. They weren't going to report this, and uh, Green explains it as, quote, firstly because they couldn't be certain that the boon who'd stayed with them was who he claimed. Secondly, because even if he was a criminal and a damned nuisance, he was still their kin. He also adds that there was probably some unspoken fear. Yeah, right? I mean, you know this man has, has eaten someone, you know he's killed his own cousin. You're like, yeah, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Yeah, because he knows where you live. Surely somebody will stop him at some point. (sighs) Yeah, but still, like, the man knows where you live, he knows where you work, and probably not the best idea to rat a psycho out when he has that information on you. Yeah, to bait the bear, essentially. Boone is on his way northward, and he starts finding himself feeling a little more social, a little little more chatty. As he traveled, he actually started to find some people who were of the same mind as he was. Insane. Yes, yes, and and violent and willing to kill for whatever reason. So there were six of them, and he kind of was their leader, in a way. And he really, again, was not shy about his culinary exploits. Uh, He said to one of the men, Many's the poor devil I've killed at one time or another, and the time has been that I've been obliged to feed on some of them. Hey, when you're hungry, you're hungry. And this, Well, yeah, I guess so. The story we get uh, is that this particular outlaw agreed and said, yes, and we'll have more of that feasting yet. And then 
shot a look at one of the other men, which prompted that guy to flee in the dark of night. He was like, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to be your dinner. I'm out. Yeah, I wonder if it was like the one chubby guy that was with him was like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah, I'm gone. So they make their way through Oregon, where there were plenty of potential victims. They all are hauling the gold they dug out in California up north to get some land. Got my fortune, and I'm going to get some land, and I'm going to spread out. Green said, quote, if it weren't for Boone's itchy trigger finger, many of those ex-miners would have been forced to return to California and start over, or to march on to Oregon and destitution. He considered it a kindness to remove that burden from them. And these highwayman types in this day were called road agents. It, it sounds a lot more official and, and business-like than it is. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like they're just wandering around selling insurance or something. But instead of uh, life insurance, you just lose your life yeah, and I'm, all your I'm money. Yeah, they kill you and steal your gold. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, this group gets into enough trouble in Oregon that they have to, of course, it's the Wild West, get out of Dodge. So they decided to try to make it to Camp Floyd, which was located in what was then the Utah Territory. We've had the gold rush in California, and now there's a silver rush going on around Utah and Nevada and all that area, the Comstock load. So they thought, well, more easy pickings. They were also pretty excited by their expectations of what this haven for polygamists, as it was known in those days, might have in store for them. Brown chicken, brown cow. Exactly. Green said, quote, due to some fundamental misunderstandings of the practice of polygamy, Boone and his gang thought they were about to head off into some orgiastic play park where women were free and easy. I wish. <laughs> I want to go to an orgiastic play park. Right? Sounds like a good time. New business idea. Orgiastic play park. There you go. Yep. Grown-ups only. <laughs> Rather stupidly, they hit the road in October. And this is 1858 or 59. Really not a great time to be trying to make it through the mountains. Pitt gives us this description. Now, he says it's 500 miles, but I mapped it, and it's actually over 725 miles. Lays. But it doesn't go with the song. I know. I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more. So it lay through a wilderness of mountains unmarked by a trail and filled with hostile Indians. The mountains were covered with snow. Cold weather had set in for a season whose only changes for the next six months would be a steady increase of severities. The thermometer, seldom above, often marked a temp of 30 or 40 below in the mountains. Jesus! The passes were snowed up to the depths of 20 or 30 feet. Wild game, however abundant in summer, had retreated to the forests and fastnesses for food and shelter. Snowstorms and sharp winds were blinding and incessant. This group of men heading out into these conditions went about as horribly as can be expected, maybe even more horribly. It got pretty nasty here. They ran into some trouble with a group of uh, Native Americans that they called diggers back then. I guess the reasons are because they ate a lot of edible roots and tubers, and also their homes were built into the hills. Could be as much as three feet underground. Their actual name is Maidu. Uh, I just did a tiny bit of research into them. They also make amazing baskets. 
And they, they have both uh, these winter-style dwellings that are built into the hills and also a summer-style dwelling. So they have multiple homes, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Supposedly the Maidu ambushed the men, or at least that was Boonhelm's story later on. I doubt it. Same here. They seem, I mean, I've, like I said, I only did cursory research into them, but they seem pretty peaceful. Yeah, like, just knowing this group, I'm guessing they tried to either mug or murder a Native American, and then the tribe went against these men that were quite possibly, like, going to attack them. Yeah, that seems a lot more right for the personalities that are involved in this group of men. Yeah, and Boone's never going to say that. He's never going to be like, yeah, I started it. He's... Especially considering that when he tells this story, he's trying to get help from other people. So he's going to say, oh, we were set on by the, the diggers. And in, in an attempt to gain more sympathy for his plight, he's never going to say we were the instigators. Yeah, we killed one of their little ones, and then they came after us. Uh. Yeah, we don't really know what happened there, but I don't think we can trust Boone to tell us the story uh, in any with any sort of accuracy. Correct. But according to Boone, they spent some time running from the Maidu. Then the men got stuck in a nasty snowstorm, and finally they found an abandoned hunting cabin where they could take shelter. And most of them were like, I am not going back out in that shit, which... Coming from the area we do, with the weather not being nearly so bad, we've had many moments where we've walked into our house and been like, okay, I am staying here for the next six months. Yeah. So I'm not going back out in that shit. I've felt that. Yep. The trouble was they would need to stay for the whole winter, and they didn't really have enough for the whole winter. And Boone seems to be hypervigilant about food. He really noticed this. He was like, yeah... This whole plan of hunkering down for the winter isn't going to work unless you all enjoy being corpses. So he's ready to go at a moment's notice. And the second there was even a hint that the weather might break, he's going to bolt. He had sort of a kindred spirit in that respect, somebody who was also realizing that this situation could not last. And that was Elijah Burton. Now, Elijah Burton is going to have it rough. And he's going to have it rough because of... Two main reasons. Refrigeration is not a common thing, and Boonhelm is a psycho. Yeah, that's going to be the big one right there. Yeah, yeah. But for the moment, Burton was just kind of keeping an eye on Boone. He's like, I'm just going to follow whenever he goes, because I think that he's the guy who has the best survival skills here, and he's not wrong. The weather didn't break, and the food did run out. Then they started eating the horses. They made some snowshoes from the leather from the horses. And finally, when there didn't appear to be any break in the weather coming, Boone was like, I'm going to head out. You can come with me or stay put, all of you. And so they decided to go with. Boone pretty much figured they're not going to make it. They were dead weight, and soon they'd be just plain dead. So he waited until the group took a little rest, and then he slipped off. Burton saw this, and he followed. So they're traveling sort of parallel, and they make it to Fort Hall. It's deserted. It's still winter, and these people were smart enough to get out before the snow started, and they were stuck without any new supplies able to get to them. They were smart. Yes. They're not like, let's go traveling through the mountains starting in October. Burton doesn't quite make it inside. He collapses outside. Boone drags him in, gets a fire going. And I love Pitt's account of what happened next in Vigilante Days and Ways, 
because this is taken directly from a, a letter he got from a man named John W. Powell, who, come springtime, was traveling with some other men and ran into Boone and got his story and relayed it to Pitt. Here is this very casual tale uh, that, that he got from Boone. When out in the willows hard by procuring firewood, Boone heard the report of a pistol. Running back into the house, he found Burton had committed suicide by shooting himself. Boone then concluded to try and find his way into Salt Lake Valley. Cutting off well up in the thigh, Burton's remaining leg, we have a parenthetical here, he had eaten the other, he rolled the limb up in an old flannel shirt, tied it across his shoulder, and started. I love how the cannibalism is in a parenthetical. We're just going to put that in parentheses. It's not really super important, but you should probably know. Yeah. <laughs> so most of the time when you uh, talk about throwing legs over shoulders, we're talking about entirely different things. It's a lot more fun than what happened here. Yeah. 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 So Green's account of this has Boone tying off Burton's leg with a belt while Burton is still alive and cuts the leg off, roasts it, eats it, maybe even feeds some of it to Burton to keep him. You got to keep him going. You got to keep him alive. There's no refrigeration. And he's exactly. And he's planning on Burton being his food source for the rest of the damn winter. And so Burton finally was, you know, going to fight back by going for the gun when Boone was out, but there was only one bullet left, which, even if he can get Boone in one shot, still leaves him alone with one leg and no food in the, in the winter in the mountains. This is not a great situation. So that's kind of the impetus for him to uh, die by suicide there. In Boone's tale to Mr. Powell, he also said that he, you know, was out on the road, and he encountered a Native American man named Moquip, who helped him get towards civilization. Moquip later tells his story to Pal about how Boone actually shared his um, provisions with him. Quote, when I first tasted of the flesh, I knew not what it was, but told the stranger it was good game, better than I had myself. The stranger then took hold of one of the corners of a red shirt that was around his pack and jerked it up. When a white man's leg, the lower end ragged from gnawing, rolled out onto the ground. Oh. Yeah. And having someone eat human flesh without even giving them so much as a heads up? Tricked him into it? That's gross. Yeah, right? Then Powell resumes telling the story from his own point of view again and says how they were getting ready to head to Salt Lake City. Boone was going to come with them. They fit him up with a new buckskin suit. They got him a horse. And then one of the members of Powell's party comes to him with a dilemma. Boone had given him a sack of coins and asked him to keep it safe. So Powell checked out the stash, and it was $1,400 in gold coins. Boone had claimed to only have $9 to his name. And then they spent a bunch of money and supplies getting him kitted out. So Powell's just basically like, you can take care of yourself, dude. Hands Boone back his money and sends him off. Quote, he coolly put the coin in his pocket without expressing a syllable of thankfulness for the assistance I had rendered him. Boone does make it to Salt Lake City, and he gets back into his usual routine of drinking and gambling pretty quickly. Then he seemed to catch the attention of some of the local bigwigs. They were having a little problem with 
couple of the miners in town who are kind of fighting each other for dominance over the area. You know, who's going to be the man at the top of the heap? And the Mormon elders, according to Green, didn't want this power struggle to cause any more collateral damage. So they were like, if we just get an outsider to take care of this for us, then neither man will be a problem anymore. And then we just send the outsider away. Boom. We're in charge again. Everything's great. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love nutting day. <laughs> nutting day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest, and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Where's the link? <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. So they set Boone after the miners, and he did his thing. He shot the first guy in the neck while he was pissing on a building. The victim was pissing on a building. There you go. And the second guy, he just shot right in the street, in the back, as the guy was starting to run away. Boone has no fucks to give. Yeah, and he just really just does not care whether he brings attention to this. I think the, the elders or the people who set him on this course, we're thinking, oh, maybe he'll do this quietly. He'll kill somebody in their sleep or something. No, broad daylight, middle of the street. Like, come on, dude, have some subtlety. Boone and subtle do not belong in the same sentence. That is true, yes. So the elders get him out of town. They can't have a loose cannon like that running around unless they had somebody in particular they wanted to point him at, and they'd already done that. So Boone is then back into kind of a wandering phase then, even more so than previously. He joins a mercenary militia with the, you know, it's about that time, some pretty racist, one might even say confederate ideals. Mm. They take him in, but eventually they see how he treats people and they're like, wait, we don't want any more of this. Uh, Green says regarding the fairly standard practice of the militia raping women that they'd captured especially Native American women. Quote, Boone seemed more interested in mutilating the women that he'd captured than pleasuring himself with them. So even these guys are like, no, this guy's disturbing and disturbed. Yeah, like, we're fucked up, but he's like way more. Next level. So they send him away. They kind of did like a constructive dismissal thing. They were like, you go scouting and we'll just be over here. And then they stopped being over here. They were like, let's get the hell away before he comes back. <laughs> you go scouting that way. All right, he's gone. Everybody run. Yes. Just run like hell. They sent him with another guy who was also making them kind of nervous. These two actually worked pretty well together for a bit. They were doing their road agent thing. They headed into Canada 
And what they were looking for were miners bringing gold dust back from their claims. They found two French miners and a man named Sokolowski near Kesnel Forks, B.C., British Columbia. They killed the men and stupidly their horses, too. And since they've killed the horses, they have all this gold and no way of hauling it. So they just buried it in the road. Once again, they did not bury the bodies. They dug a hole for the gold, but just left the bodies there to be discovered. Uh, it was said to be $30,000 in gold, which is over $1 million today. I, I don't know if anybody's ever found this. <laughs> Let's go on a trip. Let's go on a little trip. We'll stop at the Jello Museum first, and then we'll, we'll head out to, to Kesnell Forks and uh, just see what we can find. Do Time little, for a road trip, yeah. Just do a little digging. <laughs> Maybe somebody found it. I have no idea. Of course... The deaths were discovered pretty quickly, but as soon as word got into town that these bodies had been found, Boone and his unnamed buddy split as well. There's more wandering until they get to Victoria, British Columbia, which in modern driving is about 11 hours from Kesnell Forks. Boone went to the Adelphi Saloon, confident that he could just do his usual routine of drinking on the bar's dime and then never paying up, you know, like he does. Last call comes. The bartender's like, hey, you know, pay up. You drank all that whiskey. Where's my money? And Boone just said, quote, don't you know that I'm a desperate character? I love that he's like taking advantage of being an unknown, but he still expects people to know what he's about. Like, don't you know that I'm a desperate character means you were the idiot who lent me money in the first place. Shouldn't have done that. Your mistake. You're, you're bad. Yeah. It's amazing to me that the following happens. Boone has killed many men, eaten some of them, mutilated women in front of other men. It's his bar tab that busts him, to an extent. It's like H.H. H. Holmes and the horse rustling. Like H.H. H. Holmes built a freaking murder castle but really the thing that clinched it was he tried to steal some horses in Texas. Yeah. You don't do that. You can build as many murder castles as you want. Don't you go trying to steal any horses in Texas. For the longest time, I was mistaken about what horse wrestling meant. I just thought it was kind of like herding, you know? Just herd these horses over here or over there or whatever. I didn't realize it was stealing. It took me longer than it should have to figure that out. <laughs> So the bartender sends for the police, and this is where Boone first appears in the newspapers that we have access to. Quote, Boone Helm, said to be a bad character, was arrested by Sergeant Blake last evening. This is from the weekly British colonist out of Victoria in uh, October of 1862. Just a little side story that was in the paper, like right next to this. A man named Albin has been arrested for stealing three axes from the woodyard. It is charged that the accused, who was employed by the woodyard, carried the implements of industry off and sold them to woodchoppers at work in the harbor. The headline is, Never Axed for Them. Oh. I didn't write it. They wrote it. I just then put it in my notes and then read it to you. <laughs> so dad jokes have been around for centuries. Yeah, yeah, really. This is, uh, is mid-19th century Canadian dad jokes. There you go. Love it. Going back to Boone. That Sergeant Blake who arrested him, he really knew that something was up. 
about this guy. So he's trying to gather information in the little time that he's allotted between arrest and trial. Boone is also hard at work. He gets himself a pretty good lawyer and even convinces the guy that, you know, he'll pay him really well once the trial is over. This is why retainers were invented for lawyers. Sergeant Blake tried to get some answers out of Boone's unnamed companion, but um, he didn't so much make it. Green says, quote, The life that suited Boone so well out in the wild places of the world had weakened this man to the point of infirmity, and one firm smack to the head had been one too many. Oops. So what, they smack him in the head and he just drops dead? That seems to be the story that we're getting, yes. All right. And then they were like, okay, well, we just won't try him. We'll bury him instead. Sergeant Blake has been trying and trying to get any information or an extradition order, anything he can get, but it's just complete silence. So by the time Boone goes to trial, it's not looking great for the prosecution. The judge tells Boone, okay, you can be free on $50 bail, which is $800 today. But Boone is like, I don't have it. While his lawyer is standing there like, wait, what? I'm sorry, could you run that by me again? And run that by my bank account as well? Because you're supposed to be paying me, and I'm going to charge you more than that. I just, I just did a whole bunch of work for you, trying to get you free. This is the part where you get free and then pay me. And Boone's like, nah, I can't. can't do that. The lawyer's face just must have been a work of art. I wish they'd had a, a courthouse sketch artist right. to do that. So since Boone can't pay up, they send him to the chain gang for a month. The month passes, he does his work, and then he hits the road. Three days later, Sergeant Blake receives an extradition request from America. Too little, too late. He has the weirdest damn luck. This Boone does, not Blake, obviously. Boone is, of course, long gone, and he, of course, has a new buddy. This one we have a name for, Dirty Harris. Dirty Harris. Yeah, that's, um, that doesn't bode well when you meet somebody named Dirty Harris. You're like, oh, shower maybe? And you can get a better nickname. Dirty Harris had a pack train. So he goes back to that life and he brings Boone along with him. But there's a snag. Somebody recognizes Boone. One of his previous victims, a miner that Boone had held up and just basically stolen the guy's ammo. They, the man was carrying gold. They had gold on them. They're like, ah, ammo. And then afterwards, the, the miner and his companion were like, wait, they were so excited to get ammo. Did they hold us up with empty guns? Shit. Right? <laughs> but this was right after the murder of the Frenchman and Sokolowski. And that miner knew them, had traveled with them very recently. So he was, like, connecting the dots here. And also he was not going to mess with anybody who's holding a gun to his face when there have been these brutal murders so recently of people he knew. You're not going to risk that gun being empty. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Honestly, you wouldn't think that somebody would be so ballsy as to hold you up with an empty gun, but uh, that's Boone. That's Boone. Empty gun boon. Empty gun boon. Empty barrel boon. Empty barrel boon. So this was actually still in Canada 
And so therefore, this miner who identified Boone could rope in the British soldiers. They found him. Took a while, but they found him. Dirty Harris was not with him, though, even though supposedly Dirty Harris had fled along with Boone. So they ask him, where'd your, where'd your buddy go? In my belly. Mm-hmm. Boone says, why do you suppose I'd be damned fool enough to starve to death when I can help it? I ate him up, of course. Just admits it. To, to soldiers, to authorities. He's like, oh, yeah, no, that guy, I ate him, obviously. So Boone is extradited to America on murder charges. He had to be escorted on the trip to Victoria and then on to Washington State. It's then that we get this bit from Green. I had a moment with this text. It's, it's a, an interesting book. I liked it, but this was a moment that I had with the text, and I have to just share this with you and our wonderful listeners because I don't want it all alone in my head. So it's how the escort sees what kind of man Boone is. Quote, After a falling out, most men might pass those they once thought of as friends in the street without a nod. Boone passed his in the outhouse. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, shit, who knew that Scott was using green as a, as a <laughs> pen name? <laughs> That's a Scott joke. That is a Scott joke. <laughs> I was like, I had to flip to the back of the book and look. I was like, That's not Scott. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, Well, past his enemy in the outhouse. Yep, 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 yep. yep. All right. Grossed my dad out hardcore with that one. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, oh, no. I was like, eh. So Boone was taken to jail in Port Townsend, Washington. And he pulls a classic Boone. Empty barrel Boone gets himself a knife and a trowel. He says later that it's from his, quote, squaw. I hate it. It's a Native American, like, kind of stereotyped word for, like, wife. Oh. Girlfriend, lady, you know in your life. And so I love that there's this racism side by side with like, yeah, but I'll just use their words too. (laughs) Like pick a lane. Preferably not the racism one. I mean, I guess appropriation is sort of the lesser crime here, I suppose. It's just annoying. And I don't like Boone. So pretty much anything he does is going to piss me off anyhow. Yeah, that's totally fair. Yeah. So Boone makes a little tunnel and escapes. They didn't notice he was gone for three days. How do you not notice? He's always got a three-day head start on everything. There was a, a lot of people in the jail, not enough people watching him, who realized that he's a wily one who will slip free of your grasp as soon as you can blink. And he also did the classic, you know, leave a bunch of rags so it looks like I'm sleeping. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, not super good at their jobs, too. I'm not excusing any of this. <laughs> This is ridiculous. Three like, days. Like, do I better. get a couple of hours, but three days, three days. nobody notices. Mm-hmm. Once again, he ends up out in California, but finally word is starting to get around that he's a psycho and an escaped psycho at that. So he can't really live amongst normal society or go carousing like he used to. But because he's empty barrel boon, he still manages. He's hiding out on a ranch in the haystacks when a rancher discovers him. And the rancher even kind of seems to realize what he has on his hands, but he takes Boone in. 
feeds them, clothes them, shelters them. They have whiskey every night, play some cards. Boone even brags about having eaten men. The rancher just kind of takes it all in stride. He's like, yeah, sure. People got to do what people got to do, even if that's to eat people. You know what? But so put yourself in the rancher's shoes. Mm -hmm. You find a murderer who eats people. You're all alone. I think the better option is to just be kind and cool with everything and maybe be like, you know what, man? I'm sorry. I'm out of whiskey. But three houses down, about three miles down the road, that guy has whiskey if you want to head that way. That's probably... But he never does that. He just takes them in. It could be like, you know, we have fight or flight, and then the other two are freeze and fawn. You know, they're not as embedded into public consciousness. Could have been like his version of fawn. Yeah. You know, as, as, as fawny as a taciturn rancher can get. <laughs> Apparently so. Boone gets to the point where he's ready to go. Dude, there's a cat meowing in the basement. Singing the song of his people. Do you think Boone just takes his leave and the rancher is unharmed? I doubt it. No. He waits until the rancher is drunk and sleeping and then shoots him in bed. And of course, he ransacks the house and takes off in the dead of night. That's like the nicest way that Boone is ever going to kill somebody, though. Really? Yeah. You're, you're right about that. I mean, is, is it nice to kill people? No. Is it nice to at least have a little bit of pity and make it fast and in your sleep? I guess. Yeah, that's, that's like as nice as Boone is going to get. At least he didn't, like, tie him up and cut off his body parts and eat him in front of him. Right? God, poor Burton. Whew. So Boone is headed off to Oregon. Here, we once again have the situation of people trying to use Boone as their weapon. This is a terrible idea. Stop doing this. Stop. He's like a killing machine, though. And, and really, you, they're just using him as their gun. They really are, exactly, as a weapon. So he's in Florence, Oregon, when some local wealthy men decide that they can use Boone to get rid of another local miner who has some power in the town. His name is Dutch Fred. And... These wealthy men, they have ideas. What do we want to do with this place? You know, it's like you walk into your, your new house and you're like, I'm going to redecorate this place. Except in their case, it's a whole town and they probably want to make as much money as possible off of it. Of course. And Dutch Fred is, is not for their ideas, so they need, need to get rid of Dutch Fred. Boone does, in fact, go to a saloon with the intention of killing Dutch Fred. But in a way, he's kind of met his match. He and Dutch Fred have a physical altercation, and then the bartender takes away Boone's gun. So Boone just kind of slouches off and sulks somewhere. After there's been some time and everybody's calmed down, he comes back to the bar. And he's putting on this show of, of being really penitent. I'm, you know, I'm real sorry about that. I lost my head. What can I say? It happens to the best of us. And he asks for his gun back. He receives it. And immediately turns and shoots and kills Dutch Fred. In front of a bunch of witnesses. And the bartender is probably just like, son of a bitch. Damn it, I should have known better. And he tells these witnesses as he's leaving, maybe some more of you want some of this. Nobody wants some of this, Boone, no matter what it is you're offering. <laughs> not, a, not a scrap. And, of course, the men who sent him in Dutch Fred's direction don't actually want to pay him. And they're kind of like, you, you did this in way too, uh, you know, 
attention grabby way. We don't want that. So they actually use the sheriff to scare Boone off. Boone then heads back to Canada. Once again, he is caught this time by bounty hunters. So we're thinking, okay, this is it. These are people who know what they're dealing with. People are starting to figure him out. They know he's a flight risk. They know he's good at escaping. They do manage to jail him and keep him for six months for the murder of Dutch Fred. But somehow, all those witnesses who are in the saloon are either leaving town or won't say a word about it. Why is that? Because someone has come to town. That someone is old Tex, Boone's eldest brother, who really seemed like kind of a decent guy and thought he was just getting his little brother out of a scrape, you know, and we'll get him, set him on the right path. I think he had a little haziness in his mind as to the person that Boone had been growing up. Yeah. Old Tex goes around town and either pays people off or threatens them in order to keep their mouths shut. And that's how Boone escaped the murder charges. They couldn't get any witnesses to actually say he'd murdered somebody in front of them in cold blood in a crowded saloon. But I actually, I have one source that said there was actually quite a bit of murders that had happened there after that one. And so people are kind of like, yeah, this is old news, whatever. I mean, that was everywhere at this point in time. Yeah, this was the wild, wild west for a reason. Mm -hmm. People got killed constantly for minor things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Besmirch a man's honor and that was all you had to do. Steal from a man. Besmirch! There shall be no besmirching in the wild west. Or if there is besmirching, then there will then be beshooting. Boone escapes the murder charges. Old Tex picks him up, and they're on their way back to Old Tex's place, which I believe was actually in Idaho, ironically. And Tex is trying to convince Boone into, you know, one of two paths. Either, you know, we'll hook you up with the Confederate Army and get you a commission, so you don't have to be quite on the battlefield, but you, you can still do some killing if you want to, but, you know, for a good cause, at least from their point of view. Yeah. Or, you know, I've got this mineral company that I'm a big part of. You can come and be part of that and just lead a nice life. You know, you can make some money. I'm sure they'll find a way to use your talents. It's still the Old West. Boone listens to him, and he's like, actually... I would prefer secret option number three, which is to steal a horse and leave in the dead of night, never to speak to his brother again. Which his brother really got off lucky. Well, it really didn't matter because he he didn't last much longer either. I'll get to that, but I did find out when he died, so. So Boone is on the road again, free to kill and rob, and of course that's what he's doing. Then he finds himself in Montana. He's not one to fly under the radar, so he's doing his usual bullshit, and this catches the eye of the local gang. Now, this is a group called the Innocents. Mm. (laughs) I love irony, too. Right? Once they figure out who he is, they decide, well, this is a little above our pay grade. We'll take you to the big big head honcho. He can decide what we're going to do with you. Are we going to kill you? Or are we going to make you one of ours? These are basically your two options. Join us or die. Pretty much, yeah. It turns out that their leader is the sheriff. 
of one of these towns. His name is Henry Plummer. He runs this big gang of road agents. He's taken a few lives with his own hands, but he always has the excuse of self-defense or he was protecting someone, generally a woman. This gang was said to have a code by which they'd recognize one another out on the road, a special knot in their tie or kerchief, whichever they were wearing. And so, you know, if a man is wearing that special knot, you know that he's one of your kind. They decided to bring him into the gang. And he was said to be, quote, from the Montana Post, the most hardened, cool, and deliberate scoundrel of the whole band. Murder was a mere pastime to him. He didn't pick the best time to join a gang, especially this one in particular. They'd been wreaking havoc all over for a while, and people were getting a little fed up with that. So they did what they did back then, and they formed the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch in Virginia City. Rolls right off the tongue. I know, right? It's, it's, it resonates. By vigilance, we mean vigilante. They busted up a bunch of the gang, and that eventually included Boone. It also included the leader, Plummer. Now, hilariously, to me at least, Plummer ended up being held in his own cells, watching as they finished construction on a gallows that he had ordered for another case. Nice. And he would swing from that gallows. The vigilantes held their trials individually, but the other men could basically hear from their jail cells. So it was really hilarious when Boone decided to finger one of his compatriots, three-fingered Jack, for his own crimes. I'm always hesitant to use the, 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 the fingered pun because... Really, nobody could, nobody could beat Animaniacs, is the thing, with the fingerprints. <laughs> yeah. And she goes off and she gets Prince, the singer, and brings him back. And they're like, no, fingerprints. And she just looks at him and goes, I don't think so. <laughs> that was amazing that they got that joke into a children's cartoon. <laughs> so, yeah, but it kind of with three-finger Jack, you kind of have to. It's, you kind of, you, it's three-finger Jack. Yeah. <laughs> There was also a, a clubfoot George in this group. They're really big on using people's physical uh, d- disabilities against them as nicknames. Well, like I, I, Three Finger Jack probably lost fingers, like in some manly way, but uh, clubfoot, whatever his name is, that could not be helped. That's not cool. I mean, he may have even just had a limp from an injury, and they just decided to call him clubfoot. That's true. But, but one way or the other, they, they just, it's stupid. They, <laughs> so, they just weren't very creative, and they had to use whatever was the most obvious. They couldn't come up with Empty Barrel Boone. No, they, they couldn't have. That's just too much. Yeah. Too, big a, too big an ask. They're not up to our level. Get on our level, Wild West people. So, Boone did kind of admit to two murders, but in private with one of the gentlemen present. He wasn't willing to say so in front of a crowd. In fact, he kissed the Bible and then proceeded to just lie like crazy, which really pissed everybody off. They were not big on that. Do you really think that Boone follows the word of the Bible? Come on now. Right? Oh, just wait. (laughs) So it was that on January 14th, 1864, exactly two weeks before his 36th birthday, Boone was strung up. Pitt tells us that, quote, he treated all the proceedings with profane and reckless levity. 
and when he was strung up, it was next to three men, one of whom he had just tried to frame for his own crimes. So he's right up there with Three Finger Jack. He's even trying to talk Three Finger Jack into giving him his coat. Because I guess Three Finger Jack had like a, a cavalry officer's coat that was trimmed with fur. That you know, obviously he stole or probably shot somebody and killed them and then stole their jacket. And uh, Boone's like, you never gave me anything. Three Finger Jack's like, what use is this going to be to you? We're all going to be dead in a couple of minutes. Come on. But they, they did try to just make this whole thing into quite the bit of polarity. So Three Finger Jack uh, was, was first. They're doing the whole thing where they're, they've got them all standing on a box, neck in a noose, and they just kick the box out from underneath them. Three Finger Jack, yeah, he ended up going the long way on this execution. His neck didn't snap. So he had to to wait for the slow suffocation. And so Boone got the last word. Three Finger Jack is swiveling around, hanging by the rope, and Boone says, Kick away, old fellow. It is my turn next. I'll be in hell with you in a minute. And then Boone went next, but by his own doing. Rather than wait for them to kick the box out from under him, he just jumped off after yelling, Every man for his principles! Hurrah for Jeff Davis! Let her rip! And then jumps off and snaps his own neck. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were 3,000 people present to see the execution. Now, just a note, this was held in or around Virginia City. The oldest numbers we have are around 1880 for population, so about, you know, 15 years after this. Since then... Virginia City's population has never been more than 675, which it hit in 1890. Wow. This is not a big place, and they get 3,000 people in. And there's a comment in Pitt's telling that mentions that no women were allowed at executions around here at this point in time because it seems, and I, I didn't dig into this, but there was some sort of issue the previous year when the women folk somehow interfered with a murder trial, or at least... From the point of view of the men folk. The women folk interfere. Those interferers. So actually, of the, the men hanging there, he wasn't, Boone wasn't the only one to jump off. There was another man who did that too. Montana Post, in A Tale of the Hangings, uh, this is just a little entertaining bit, uh, tells about this other man. Frank Parrish requested to have a handkerchief tied around his face. His own black necktie, fastened in the road agent's knot, was taken from his throat and dropped over his face like a veil. He seemed serious and quiet, but refused to confess anything more, and was launched into eternity. A bystander asked the guard who adjusted the rope, Did you not feel for the poor man as you put the rope around his neck? The vigilante, whose friend had been slaughtered by the road agents, regarded his interrogator with a stern look, and answered slowly, Yes, I felt for his left ear. That's where you put the knot. Don't I know it? Don't you know it? Yeah, you've got the, the, the mole there that signals that... <laughs> in a past life, I've been hanged for my crimes. Or you will be in the future. Oh, ouch. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I thought that was the thing. Oh, I don't know. I thought it was in the future because we freaked out. <laughs> and I was like telling you to be careful. <laughs> At some point, I'll be hanged. Maybe it's just because I really like being choked. And it's like, we're just going to give this to you. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. So the Chicago Tribune... A month and a half later, noted that of the four men hanged that day, two had their bodies retrieved by friends, while two others were buried by the vigilance committee. One has to wonder if Boone's remains weren't 
retrieved by friends because he had eaten them all. Yeah, he didn't have any, well, he didn't have any friends to start with, but even <laughs> if he did, like, I don't think that they would have come back for him. The hanging also was noted in Virginia City's paper, the Montana Post, exactly one year later, in a column entitled, The Achievements of a Year. The Achievements. And they led with this. This is their biggest achievement in the past year. So as I mentioned, Boone's brother Tex did not last very much longer. He actually died the following year, in 1865, thrown from a wild horse. Going back to Lucinda, that poor wife who managed to escape, she died around 1877 at the age of 43. And that is the tale of Boone Helm and the destruction that he wrought all over the West. He was back and he was forth and then he was north and then he, he was just all over the place. Just munching his way through like, <laughs> it's like Pac-Man. <laughs> oh, good Lord. So uh, speaking of munching, I have a recipe for you from Modern Household Cookery by a Lady. Oh, by a lady. Sarah Josepha Hale. Okay. Uh, this is from the 1850s, so around Boone Helm's time, and it's for pigeon soup. Okay. Make a strong beef stock, highly seasoned as if for brown soup. Take six or eight pigeons, according to their sizes, wash them clean, cut off the necks, pinions, livers, and gizzards, and put them into the stock. Quarter the pigeons and brown them nicely. After having strained the stock, put in the pigeons. Let them boil till nearly ready, which will be in about half an hour. Then thicken it with a little flour rubbed down in a teacupful of the soup. Season it with half a grated nutmeg, a tablespoonful of lemon juice or of vinegar, and one of mushroom ketchup. Let it boil a few minutes after all these ingredients are put in and serve it with the pigeons in the tureen. A better thickening than flour is to boil quite tender two of the pigeons, take off all the meat, and pound it into a mortar, rub it through a sieve, and put it with the cut pigeons into the strained soup. To make partridge soup, partridges may be substituted for pigeons when only four birds will be required. Pound the breast of one. Pigeon soup. That's, um... I think I'm more stuck on the pigeon flour that you're making <laughs> yeah. to thicken the soup. Ew. Yeah, right? We're Ew. turning meat into flour by, like, mashing it. It's, that's, that's something. Yeah, that's that something. is something. That is certainly something. So we have a shout-out to new member of the Patreon, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. <laughs> Otherwise known as Jay. Otherwise known as Jay. And so uh, you can join the Patreon too, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is in the show notes. Be cool like Jonathan. Be cool. Jonathan join us. Jonathan is pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah, that is uh, this week. And Boone Helm, the Kentucky cannibal. And again, another uh, thank you to Paul for the book. And uh, you're welcome for the puns, apparently. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, social media, uh, occasionally I put stuff up, but uh, not so much, but <laughs> I'm bad at it, and uh, I'm, it, it, my back hurts all the time. So, as is evidenced by the fact that we're recording this from my couch. So, yeah, uh, you can also support us with a one-time donation at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com uh, on PayPal, and you can use that to get a shout-out as well. 
But if you want the content, the Patreon is where it's at. That and is where it's at. That's over, where all the coolest stuff is. There's over like 200 posts there now, and the vast, vast majority of that is bonus episodes. There's a couple of text or picture posts here or there where like, you know, Hemingway would be in my lap when I was trying to edit, stuff like that. But it's, the vast majority is like, it, we'd probably have 200 tinies and extra extras and all that fun stuff. So there is so much to binge there for just five bucks a month. So, uh, what you doing this week? I am going to try, try, being the key word here, uh, to make a garden be a real thing. Hmm. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, no gardening for me. I am going to the neurosurgeon on Tuesday to talk about the possibility of surgery. Not super excited. We'll see. We'll see what comes of that. I'm just going to get information for now. Get information for now. See if you can turn into like Bionic Christie. Yes, yes. I would like to be bionic. Has been a dream of mine for a long time. To be part Christie and part machine. Ah, it'll be wonderful. I'll be able to kick all the asses. Right now I can't even kick. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, I'm doing that. Um, I'm going to my summer hair, which is not my fabulous bright colors because they don't last very long when I'm out in the sun all the time. So I'm doing that this week. Going to have like light brownish, dark blonde, something along those lines. So yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm going to have to go to my summer hair too, but I, we ran across a problem. So I usually donate um, to alopecia mm -hmm. and they're no longer accepting donations due to COVID. So I need to find another place for Kennedy and I to donate our hair, which is turning into more of an ordeal than I thought. Wow. Because some places you have to go to like specific um, hairdressers that have to do things a certain way. And almost all of them want 12 inches or more. Mm -hmm. And like, I have 12 inches, but a lot of them are like, we want 18. And I'm like, I don't have that. I don't really want it down to my ass crack. Yeah. Like, right? That's not a goal of mine. And it's, it's summer and I want to just hack it off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That is apparently tough. That's really weird that hair is not being taken due to COVID. Yeah. Well, a lot of them, I guess, stopped taking donations for a while and then they started up again but that one didn't yet hmm. interesting so. well yeah that's uh, our weeks i would also like to say hello to two of our listeners who reached out this week uh robin and charlotte Had hey. some conversations with them well i need to get back to robin but i will before this airs so <laughs> yes uh charlotte reached out because she's interested in getting into cross stitch and robin reached out to tell us about a crime to remember on investigation discovery so a, a good show. I've seen a couple of them. I don't think I've seen them all, but I did enjoy what I saw, and it's very well done and fun. So, yeah. All right. Well, that is our show for the week. And um, I think it goes without saying, but just in case, I'm going to say my advice for you this week would be don't eat people. Oh, no. Don't tell them that. Oh. Don't eat people in the bad way. There you go. All right. We'll see you next week. Or you'll hear us, you know, whatever. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are Kentucky Cannibal, Kentucky Cannibal, the true story of an outlaw, murderer, and man-eater by Ryan Green, Vigilante Days and Ways, the pioneers of the Rockies, the makers and the making by Nathaniel Langford Pitt, and from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, the weekly British colonist, the Chicago Tribune, and the Montana Post. 
My sources were listverse.com by Joe Duncan, Medium by Sabana Grande, Legends of America by Emerson Howe, and Jenny.com. And one smurm, dang it, one firm smack to the head had been one too many. Boone just rode his, bleh, clap for me, from the, <laughs> it was bound to happen. I went to get a drink and knocked everything over, so clap for me. <laughs> Yay.